Thank you so much, Dr. O'Reilly, for that very, very kind introduction. It is my great pleasure and honor to be with you this evening. I would like to thank in particular President and Mrs. McLean for their wonderful hospitality and Paul for extending the invitation, as well as the benefactors whose generous support makes possible this fine educational institution named in honor of our churches and indeed our civilization's great exemplar of erudition. I am impressed by the curiosity and dedication of the young scholars here, and I wish to add my own commendation of the mission and example that Thomas Aquinas College is setting for all of Catholic higher education with its faithfulness to the magisterium of the church and its dedication to the liberal arts. In his great book on natural right, Professor Leo Strauss described a fundamental opposition between those who believe that a natural moral order lay behind a just government and those whom we might call relativists. He depicted two hostile camps, heavily fortified and strictly guarded, one occupied by relativists of various descriptions and the other by the Catholic and non-Catholic disciples of Thomas Aquinas. I am relieved this evening to find myself mostly in the company of the latter side of the battle lines, for in my remarks I will be speaking of the natural law and the American founding. And although I hope to avoid the often simplistic dichotomy between relativists and believers in absolute truth, I am comforted that my observations on this subject will receive a more sympathetic hearing here in the foothills of the Topa Topa Mountains than they likely would in the more polarized ideological precincts where my duties as a federal judge often oblige me to travel. Professor Strauss began his book by quoting from the timeless text of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is fitting to begin an address on the natural law and the American founding with a similar invocation, one which Professor Strauss rightly observed by its weight and elevation is made immune to the degrading effects of the excessive familiarity which breeds contempt and of misuse which breeds disgust. As every schoolboy knows, or at least used to know, the Declaration of Independence is the fundamental charter of our polity but it is also the locus classicus of the natural law in the American political tradition. Not only does the Declaration speak of 
unalienable rights derived not from man-made law, but from the Creator. Moreover, it finds the warrant for those bold statements in nature, and nature's God. Any consideration of the natural law in American political and legal tradition must therefore start with an appraisal of this magnificent document. But in many quarters of American intellectual life, be it the universities, the media, or the legal profession, the claims of the Declaration are sadly no longer taken seriously. This is especially so in the law schools and on the courts. For although few Americans, no matter their professional vocation or political ideology, would publicly at least forswear the equality of all citizens or the sanctity of their various individual rights, few as well would consciously accept the basis for those principles in nature or nature's God. Much of our contemporary elite's rejection of both the vocabulary and the principles of natural law lies in a thoroughly secularized culture. But in my world, the world of law, a crucial intellectual influence has been the twin philosophies called legal positivism and legal realism. Legal positivism is the idea that law derives its binding force not from the fact that it is just or that it comports with a higher idea found, for example, in nature or scripture, but from the fact that it represents the will of the sovereign authority. An unfair but perhaps not unhelpful way to describe legal positivism is encapsulated in the dictum that might makes right. Whoever is in charge makes the rules, and those are what we call law. Legal realism, on the other hand, followed the path first blazed by the positivists in rejecting any objective standard for law as such. But legal realism took the more radical step of exposing lawmaking as nothing but the exercise of naked power. For example, the traditional view in the Anglo-American system held that judges simply apply the law as they find it. Against this view, the legal realists allege that there can be no politically neutral act in such finding and application of the law. Rather, all acts of adjudication, as well as legislation, are merely the imposing of policy preferences. It should not be surprising that such philosophies have come to prominence in American law. The fact that from our earliest history this country has been home to a multiplicity of religions at the very least suggests that consensus about a transcendent moral basis for the legitimacy of law would be unlikely. Of course, that presumption is contradicted not only by the founders' widely accepted invocation of natural law in the Declaration, 
but also by the very essence of natural law, which asserts that it is accessible to human reason as such, regardless of religious belief. We will return to this observation shortly, but the more convincing explanation for the success of legal positivism and realism today lies in a widely shared popular understanding of the principles of democracy in general and of the American regime in particular. Democracy at its core connotes self-government. The people rule themselves according to laws that they or their representatives frame. In democracies such as ours, the sovereignty resides in the people. And the people now are free to make laws as they deem most productive of their common good. Nevertheless, some would take this noble idea of democratic freedom to an extreme and require freedom from all objective and moral constraints. Legal positivism and legal realism, the two most powerful forms of relativistic thinking within the law, would argue that democracy means majority rule, plain and simple, unconstrained by any external standard or higher authority that may serve to check the substantive content of popular legislation. Regrettably, this relativistic idea of democracy can find support in a certain, although I believe incorrect, understanding of America's founding principles. While the Declaration of Independence eloquently invokes natural law as the basis for man's unalienable rights, it also emphasizes consent as the only legitimate basis for government and laws. For example, we Americans have consented to drive on the right side of the road while our separated brethren in England and con <laughs> have consented to do the exact opposite. As long as fair procedures exist for determining such consensus, the outcome should seem morally indifferent to us. But not all political questions are similar matters of moral indifference. Our civilization for much of Western history had looked to the natural law to distinguish just which questions properly belong to political majorities to decide and which questions in turn were governed by permanent moral norms that no amount of nose counting could possibly overturn. The declaration for its part is taciturn about the relative priority of nature and nature's God on the one hand and consent and human convention on the other. I strongly suggest that a relativistic view of democracy misconceives the nature of the American project. Indeed, we must be wary of seemingly uncontroversial ideas about democracy infiltrating our public discourse like a Trojan horse and corrupting our true founding principles. Majority rule nobly permits each to have his own voice heard equally in public affairs, but does not and should not 
imply a freedom from those enduring principles and norms authored in nature by nature's God. More than one of the founders made a similar observation. Our Constitution and the republic that it framed can only flourish if the citizenry can reserve can preserve the practice of virtue, prudence, and self-control. This traditional view implies that an objective standard governs our conduct as individuals and citizens. But if, on the other hand, democracy means simply that the only standard of justice is the will of the people, then such form of government can hardly claim moral superiority over other regimes. Or else, why should we prefer constitutional government to cannibalism? Or American freedom to Nazi Germany, Stalin's Soviet Union, or Robespierre's reign of terror? Modern politicians and academics speak much about the rule of law promoting a value that appears to have no significant opponents. Yet if law truly ought to rule, as I believe it should, it requires a deeper moral legitimacy than that which I believe this erroneous value-neutral view of democracy and the legal positivism and legal realism to which it gives birth provides it. Accordingly, I want to offer this evening some observations on the importance of the natural law in the American tradition, an importance which I think the founders recognized and invoked most famously in the Declaration of Independence as the basis for their political project and the standard for future government. Of course, when we speak of the American tradition and natural law, we cannot simply cite the Declaration of Independence and move on. The majesty with which our patriotism and principles have invested the Declaration's words should not conceal the mystery that still surrounds them. The Continental Congress that adopted the Declaration in 1776 indeed unambiguously appealed to the law of nature. But in accounting for the basis of this invocation, the document is lamentably laconic. For example, the Declaration identifies the source of the natural law as a creator. But is it the God of the Bible or the impersonal deity of the Masonic Lodge? The Declaration speaks of the pursuit of happiness. But does that mean the mere gratification of each individual's desires or an objective account of human flourishing? The Declaration invokes the laws of nature. But do those more closely resemble the theorems of physics and biology, such as gravity, thermodynamics, evolution, or rather transcendent and permanent moral norms. 
Before counting the declaration on the side of the natural law tradition, we must recognize the inherent and perhaps purposeful ambiguity of such phrases. Classical exponents of this tradition, premised on an Aristotelian view of nature, can wholeheartedly endorse much of the document. Jefferson's pursuit of happiness, for example, may simply translate Aristotle's eudaimonia and his self-evident truths might well summarize St. Paul, who spoke of the law written on our hearts. Yet, perhaps ominously, the Declaration's careful phrasing could support a relativistic perspective. Relativists can invoke the pursuit of happiness as each man's God-given right to do as he pleases rather than to seek an objective view of happiness in accord with human nature. Such a view gives rise to many important questions, both for our political branches and for our law. If each individual may pursue happiness as he defines it, how can we distinguish between worthy and unworthy pursuits, genuine and spurious happiness? Furthermore, how can we as a country that takes seriously the idea of justice and the rule of law even speak coherently about right and wrong? If law and government are not about the public good, but all about private rights, must we not then recognize each individual's right to define his own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of life in those famous words of the Supreme Court's plurality in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Legal realism and legal positivism or any species of relativism can provide no answer to these questions. Indeed, those ideologies would consider questions about the good and the good life not only to be irrelevant, but also to be unintelligible. What is good is only what each individual considers to be good for himself. That's the end of their inquiry. I propose this evening that such an attitude does not measure up and that a proper understanding of the Declaration provides a more satisfying alternative. In particular, I emphasize that these majestic, albeit to some extent indeterminate, phrases in the Declaration need not and should not be read in isolation. Rather, we do well to understand our founding principles as our, particular, as our peculiar inheritance in a much longer and more robust tradition of natural law philosophy that has provided our civilization with intellectual, spiritual, and moral vitality. So when we speak of natural law, precisely what do we mean by nature? In our contemporary usage, the word nature often calls to mind notions such as environmentalism, 
Natural, National Geographic magazine, Mother Nature. The view of nature implied by those notions adopts the value-neutral perspective of modern science. According to this view, nature is just the undifferentiated data of the phys physical world. And the only natural law is evolution, gravity, and thermodynamics. As a result, we cannot elaborate any fundamental moral norms from studying nature. But contrary to this understanding, the classical natural law tradition, rooted as far back into antiquity as Aristotle, has a more robust and substantive perception. Nature included not only all of these environmental data, nature also implied an objective standard. Each thing in nature had its own appropriate place and its own appropriate function in its complex order. That function, or end, supplied an objective standard by which human reason could make sound moral judgments. For example, the end of a chair is to provide a place to sit. Some chairs that we encounter in our daily lives accomplish this end, better or worse. Shoddy carpentry prevents a chair from realizing its fullest potential. A sloppily constructed chair is a less perfect chair than a carefully handicrafted chair. It is in light of the chair's purpose, its end, that we find the warrant for speaking of good and bad chairs. In other words, it is not simply each individual's relativistic perspective, but rather something about, in this example, the nature of the chair that provides the ground for moral judgment. The classical natural law tradition applied a similar analysis to human affairs, including law and government. Human nature, according to the traditional formulation, likewise had an objective content. Individual human beings lived better or worse lives to the extent that they adhered to or rebelled against the permanent moral norms that their objective nature implied. According to most expositors of this tradition, the end that nature provided for man was happiness. For earlier generations, this happiness did not refer to momentary sentiments of satisfaction, but a more enduring notion of human flourishing. Aristotle, for example, conceived of human happiness in terms of political life. He explained that because man alone among the living things has the gift of speech and reason, he alone can rationally debate about what is just and unjust. Man's reason and his sociability make him especially suited for and needful of political life. He thus famously described man as a political animal by nature. But by that statement, Aristotle is not merely recounting an observable pattern of random behavior. 
the fact of man's political nature also implies a norm. Individuals form a political community, the city, to secure the necessary preconditions of life. But not merely that, political life comes into existence, more importantly, for the purpose of the good life. Law and government is natural to man, according to Aristotle, because the rational pursuit of the common good promotes his proper end, his true happiness, that is, his nature. What a stark difference from how politics is conceived today. Despite the pagan provenance of Aristotelian thinking, Christianity can nevertheless integrate its insights, which are founded on truths accessible to human reason, and not on some exotic religious belief. The greatest and most justly celebrated Christian thinker in this tradition, I don't need to remind this audience, is the namesake of this fine college. St. Thomas and other Christian natural law thinkers did not object to Aristotelian analysis, but reformulated man's end in light of the revelation to which Aristotle could not have access. Man's highest end was not merely the good life in the ideal earthly city, but eternal bliss in the city of God. Importantly, St. Thomas and the Christians did not think that revelation conflicted with reason in this respect. Christian revelation pointed beyond and perfected what reason alone could discover. But this did not derogate from the desirability of human justice and human flourishing, incomplete as those goods must always appear to the Christian conscience. If we listen closely enough, we can hear echoes of this natural law tradition in the Declaration of Independence itself. The explicit invocation of the Creator directs our intention, if not to Christian theology, at least to a pre-existing order in nature to which our laws and government must attend. The Declaration speaks sonorously about an external standard that provides a source for evaluating the legitimacy, justice, and goodness, not only of individual laws, but of entire political systems. And perhaps most strikingly for our modern ears, conditioned to the vernacular of secularism and relativism, the Declaration fearlessly defends an account not simply of opinions, preferences, or values, but of truths and self-evident ones at that. Both classical and Christian thinkers in the natural law tradition agreed on the essential point. An external and objective moral standard governed human actions and human law. A more modern view that has gained dominance in recent centuries objects fundamentally 
to this classical and Christian understanding of nature. This modern objection to the natural law tradition comprises both a philosophical and a political component. The philosophical objection originated in the natural sciences, as we have come to know them, which early on rejected the Aristotelian view of nature. Whereas the traditional view included an objective standard, a transcendent order in nature, modern science conspicuously remains agnostic on such matters. Aristotle would want to know the purpose of a chair, the purpose of a horse, the purpose of a human being, in order to determine whether a particular member of that category fully lived in accord with its nature. Modern science instead dispenses with ends and inquires only into means. Through empirical investigation and experimentation, modern science studies natural phenomena to understand how things work. Such information is unquestionably more useful in developing technology, for example, but it offers no help in grounding our moral judgments. Nature tells us nothing about how we should live or how we should frame our laws. As a result, the modern view of nature cannot help us determine the ends for which such new scientific knowledge should be used. The same scientific research that produces cures for cancer and environmentally sustainable energy can just as well create more effective abortifacients and nuclear missiles. The modern rejection of natural law principles also comprises a political complaint. The classical and Christian philosophers analyze politics with reference to an objective standard in human nature, whether that be the political life in Aristotle's just city or the eternal beatitude in the heavenly kingdom. In contrast, the modern view proposed an ostensibly more accurate, if less idealistic, analysis. Considerations about law and government should begin with men as we find them and not as how we wish they would act. Of course, <clears throat> such realism recognizes a certain truth about mankind. In a fallen world, human beings can be indeed tend to be incredibly wicked, greedy, violent, and excessively self-regarding. And especially in a pluralistic society such as ours, there is sharp and often violent disagreement about fundamental questions regarding man's end, his destiny, and how to live a good life. We might therefore expect a purportedly more realistic political theory to focus first on pursuing interests we all share in common, securing peace and the preconditions of life. The modern view self-consciously lowers the horizons. 
Instead of enacting laws to promote virtue and to correct vice, the modern view maintains a studious neutrality on questions of good and bad, right and wrong. It does not aspire to overcome or even to ameliorate human greed or pride, but merely to channel such sentiments toward productive activities. In this way, the methods and assumptions of the new natural sciences began to migrate into political thought. Just as modern science admits of no ends that its research serves, modern political theory lays aside questions of justice or morality for law. We can all readily agree that we prefer material prosperity to scarcity and knowledge to ignorance. But no similar consensus exists concerning the purposes to which we should devote our wealth or education. Questions of ends and values are therefore left for each individual to decide. And under the influence of this modern view, the laws have progressively given broader scope to individuals' liberty to pursue their own moral versions, or none at all. In contemporary legal debates, this view is well represented by legal realism and legal positivism. According to such relativistic perspectives, nature provides no objective standard to which laws and government or individuals in their private behavior must conform. The law's binding force derives only from the will of the sovereign authority. Whether the people's duly elected legislators or unelected judges imposing their policy preferences from the bench. The modern relativistic view of nature self-consciously refuses us any guide about how we should either conduct our private lives as citizens or frame our laws as a political community. Ultimate questions of good and evil, truth and falsehood are left exclusively to the realm of individual preference and subjective whim. So here's the problem. Both the traditional and the modern views of nature have clear and conflicting implications for politics. But more pressingly for our purposes, the Declaration of Independence does not on its face foreclose one or the other of these clashing alternative views. Candidly, either can plausibly argue that the Declaration's language incorporates its assumptions. So before we hastily reject the relativistic reading and canonize the Declaration in the classical natural law tradition, let us examine each side's arguments that this foundational American text adopts its own perspective. On first reading, it may appear obvious that the Declaration's laws of nature refers to the classical natural law tradition. 
the authors of the document recognize a standard for government and law that is external to and above that of mere human choice or convention. The Declaration further posits that the governments, that governments are instituted among men for securing the rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. We can likewise read this formulation consistently with the natural law tradition, but we must define these concepts with great care and precision. For example, the happiness in that felicitous phrase, pursuit of happiness, invokes the substantive, objective account of human flourishing that our reason can derive from nature. The life that the Declaration exalts among the unalienable rights is not mere creature comforts, but the necessary precondition for pursuing that happiness. We cannot attend to our higher priorities if we have not yet secured the necessities of our daily life. And liberty is the positive freedom to pursue happiness in accord with our nature. Properly understood, this liberty means, as Professor Patrick Deneen aptly described, the learned capacity of human beings to govern their base and hedonistic desires, a condition of self-governance of both city and soul, drawing closely together the individual cultivation and practice of virtue and the shared activities of self legislation. It is also important to acknowledge the context of the Declaration when invoking its principles. The document self-consciously did not purport to prescribe all of the details of a just political community. Indeed, the founders presumed that the states and other local governments would fill in most of the particulars. Furthermore, as many of the founders freely recognized, the American form of government could function properly only for an already virtuous and moral people. In other words, the American founding took too much about politics and human nature for granted. We have to be careful, therefore, not to regard the limited philosophy and general language enunciated in the Declaration to be the beginning and end for elaborating the founding principles we mean to invoke. Nevertheless, the modern relativistic view still has a brief to make that the Declaration favors its perspective. The document indeed waxes eloquent about nature and nature's God, but it importantly underscores that consent, mere agreement, and not any external and objective natural order is the basis of all governments. The Declaration affirms that governments are instituted of, among men merely to secure their unalienable rights, and these governments' legitimacy derives solely from the consent of the governed. Although popular consent is desirable and perhaps necessary feature in any form of government, consent is certainly not 
the touchstone of justice and right in the classical natural law tradition. For example, according to the traditional view, a political community cannot legitimately consent to something inherently unjust. Concentration camps or the gulags. Abraham Lincoln made a similarly powerful point during the debates with Stephen Douglas about popular sovereignty. If slavery was evil, we cannot pretend moral indifference about whether the territories voted to permit that institution or not. There can be no right to do a wrong no matter how many legislators vote in favor. In apparent contrast to this traditional view, the Declaration does not seem to qualify its very emphatic endorsement of consent. Modern relativism does not always emphasize consent. Legal positivism and legal realism do not measure the law, whether a statute duly enacted by the legislature or the edicts of a result-oriented and life-tenured federal judge with certain policy preferences against any higher principle of justice. Nevertheless, relativism and consent-based political theories share this important feature in common. Nature provides no external or objective standard to which the laws must conform if they are to have moral legitimacy and bind in conscience as much as they might bind in practice. Under this view, law is just someone's preference, be it a king, a judge, a temporary political majority, or a bureaucratic decision. The modern view can furthermore contend that the Declaration takes a more ambivalent view about the human good of happiness than may be apparent at first glance. The Declaration does not define what it means by happiness in any substantive sense. Rather, it forcefully champions the right of individuals to its pursuit. Treating happiness in terms of an individual right to its pursuit almost invites a relativistic interpretation. If our laws and governments stand on no sturdier basis than consent, unconstrained by any principles of natural law, by what standards are we to evaluate any particular person's pursuit of happiness? I might justifiably seek happiness in a life of virtue and integrity, but others may prefer to pass their days in ease and dissipation. Perhaps we can all agree that the federal government has no place to tell you or me to eat a balanced diet and to get plenty of exercise, but certainly at least our instincts and intuitions inform us that some ways of life are more choice-worthy than others. But on what basis, then, can we confidently make such judgments? And if our founding principles begin, as the relativists interpret the Declaration, by adopting a subjective view 
of not only happiness, but also of good and bad and true and false, our political institutions will provide us little support to navigate the deep moral and cultural crisis in which our civilization finds itself today. Now, I strongly contend that our founding principles, including the Declaration, do not incorporate the relativist perspective. Properly understood, they counsel the opposite. Nevertheless, as I suggested, the versatility of some of the Declaration's resonant phrases can leave some uncertainty on the matter. This is important not only in giving us a reason and opportunity to reaffirm our nation's historic commitment to the classical principles of natural law, but also, I believe, this explains why our political discourse has become so susceptible, especially of late, to relativism. The political and especially legal discourse in America has lost over the intervening two centuries between the founders' generation and our own much important context. In 1776 and the immediately succeeding generations, political, philosophical, and jurisprudential opinion widely assumed and took for granted that a stock of enduring and transcendent principles, what we might label the natural law, served as the standard for human action. The Declaration's elliptical discussion of the natural law's content and its emphasis on consent, as well as the pursuit in the pursuit of happiness, would have sounded much different to a culture deeply steeped in the language of the natural law. In conclusion, let me add that the modern relativistic view that I have identified as a rejection of the classical natural law tradition lies at the heart of the contemporary right to privacy jurisprudence in the Supreme Court. Planned Parenthood versus Casey, where a plurality of justices affirmed a constitutional right to abortion, relied on just such a notion. The plurality, without even a nod to the natural law principles that informed and were specially invoked by the founders, discerned such a right in the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment. It was a liberty that supposedly comprised to repeat that curious passage I mentioned earlier, the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. In other words, it is a completely formal concept that lacks any substantive content, not only agnostic, but actively opposed to any external standard of justice 
or right. More recent decisions of the Supreme Court have elaborated this view. Liberty is said to presume an autonomy of self that includes freedom of thought, belief, expression, and certain intimate conduct, and have both spatial and more transcendent dimensions. And despite its apparent portrayal as merely a formal concept, for this modern liberty, self-consciously claims to be neutral to all values, to all ways of life, to all pursuits of happiness. It has already been invoked as a trump against the more traditional view articulated in the Declaration and the principles of our founding. As we saw in the court's last term, a majority of the justice a majority of the justices could discern nothing but a bare desire to harm in the view that enshrined into state law one of the most foundational principles discernible from nature that only a man and a woman can be husband and wife in marriage I leave to your own consideration then the question of whether this departure in our legal tradition from the classical conception of nature and the natural law of the Declaration bodes well or ill for ordered liberty, constitutional government, and human dignity. But I hope that I have imparted a sense of how important it is that when we speak of the Founding's principles and the Declaration of Independence in particular, we are careful to distinguish exactly what we mean to invoke. Life, liberty, and happiness is a noble ideal toward which our political community does well to strive. But we must not allow it in our comfort and complacency with the phrase to become a Trojan horse in our city on the hill. And I have the firmest confidence that this audience, at least, whose intellectual acuity and moral vision this fine college has further sharpened, will not let that happen. Thank you very much.